Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Dearly beloved, writes St. Peter in our epistle reading today, in chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Dearly beloved, the end of all things is at hand. The end is near. What prompted St. Peter to say that? Uh, Many have speculated that the first generation of Christians actually believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetimes or very soon thereafter. There's some evidence that St. Paul was so desirous to get to Spain to preach, uh, as we see in Romans chapter 15, because Spain was the furthest westward land known in the ancient world and possibly the location of Tarshish that we hear about in the Old Testament. There's always great ships coming out of Tarshish. Um, and so the, this farthest land is the, the, the boundary, the length of the, re, the spreading of the rebellious people who were spread across the whole world at the Tower of Babel incident. And that once they had been brought back under the authority of the true God, that is Jesus Christ, the mission given to the servants of God, the apostles, would be complete, and Christ would return and establish his rule over all peoples after his gospel had been preached to them, gathering back in all those nations that had been spread out. So, St. Paul seems to say things, St. Peter sometimes in their letters, that indicate that Jesus was expected to return very shortly. Even Jesus himself said things that would uh, make you think that he wasn't going to be gone too long after his ascension. And in the book of Revelation, he says things like, very soon I will return to you. But clearly, in terms of what we generally consider a short period of time, the end of all things was not as at hand as it may have seemed to St. Peter and St. Paul and the other Christians of the first and second generations. That's not to say that there weren't plenty of indications that the world as they knew it was potentially about to end. In 70 AD, All the church had to scatter from Jerusalem as it erupted in riots from zealots looking to kick Rome and its soldiers and government out. But Rome's soldiers and governments responded to this by destroying much of Jerusalem, including the temple. Over the next uh, couple hundred years, persecutions would break out, decimating Christian populations in certain places. There were earthquakes, volcanoes, like at Pompeii, other natural disasters that seemed to shake the very foundations of the earth through wars, famines, barbarian invasions like the ones that sacked the city of Rome itself, and plagues. Followers of Jesus have wondered over and over and over again throughout the centuries, is the end finally upon us? I saw a meme this morning of the woman hunched over squinting into the distance with the caption, me this morning looking to see what chapter of Revelation we're doing today. 2020 has clearly been a uh, memorable year so far, societally speaking, anyway. 
We've seen policies and actions implemented that none of us have ever seen before. We've seen more injustices perpetrated against people, not necessarily because more are happening, just because more are now being filmed. And sensing that maybe we're nearing some kind of a breaking point. And in our memes, we joke about the end finally being near. But what we have been seeing in Atlanta the last few nights and what we're seeing with the pandemonium in Minneapolis and in other cities across the U.S. and apparently even now London, uh, these things aren't the result of people feeling like the end is near. You don't riot or loot or even campaign or share articles or write heartfelt Facebook posts if you think everything will be coming to an end soon. You do all those things in the expectation that they will continue. And in the case of the more laudably intentioned activities, you do them with the conviction that as things continue, they must get better. I guess in the case of the looting with the intention that you'll be using that TV or pair of Nikes that you picked up um, at some point. So surely that's the more Christian response, right? Not the looting and, and the uh, writing, but the activism. In the expectation that things will continue and must get better. Yes, that's the more Christian response, but also um, we have to be careful here. I think we need to eliminate two false conclusions or directions that we could take in response to all of this. Uh, one, the easiest for us to probably avoid and eliminate is the false conclusion that the end really is going to happen any minute. And so... We should just hunker down and mind our own business and wait, uh, sort of like spiritual preppers. The way some religious communities actually have reacted to turmoil before, literally running to the hills to establish a cut-off community of true believers who are willing to let the world do whatever it will while they wait for the second coming or whatever it is they think they're waiting for. We're obviously not advocating that. That's why we're still here. But there's another more dangerously plausible path that we may be tempted to take, which we also should avoid. And that's the path of world changing. I'll tell you what I mean. I want to be careful the way I say this. Growing up, I uh, took part in an organization called World Changers. Uh, we had a theme song and everything about changing the world. And what we did was um, went to work on people's houses building them new roofs, building a porch or a wheelchair ramp, uh, doing things for people in need, helping them through construction projects and, uh, well, just love and charity. And that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, I love the experience. It was uh, formative for me. It gave me a chance to learn uh, what it was like to um, spend an entire week working in hot sun for the sake of someone else who couldn't help themselves in need. And we got no other reward for it other than just doing something for them. And that was wonderful. And in a sense, we were changing the world, thus the name, through changing the lives of these people. And that is precisely how the world ought to be changed. But I, I think some Christians are tempted sometimes to think that world changing is our calling as Christians. That we are called to change the world. Here's where I want to be very clear. We are not called 
to change the world. We are called to love our neighbor. Through loving our neighbors, we may change the world. But that's God's business, not ours. Our calling is to love our neighbors, to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. So as Christians, if you are a Christian and also a very talented sociologist, then maybe do some studies that could be helpful. If you're a Christian and also a very talented economist, then make some predictions and some suggestions and uh, you know, give those to the powers that be. That could be a way that the world could be changed. But you are not called as that sociologist or that economist or that blogger or whatever it is to have a result from your actions. You're just called to act, to work. What we saw in the civil rights movement or other um, organized, large-scale attempts at societal change have been good things and blessings to our societies. Those, those have been good things. And the organizers and the, uh, those who participated in, in movements like that should be, um, well, they should be the proud of, of the work that they did. But Martin Luther King, nor any of his compatriots, nor anyone who participated in any of that movement or other movements can guarantee that what they're doing is going to change the world. And if it didn't, if all of the efforts of those marchers and those organizers and those speakers came to nothing, then would their actions have been a failure? Not if their hearts were truly shining with the love of Christ while they were doing it. And when I say a failure, I mean if, if the laws that had if the laws that were passed following the civil rights movement hadn't been passed or something like that. The point is, if what we are doing is motivated and dependent on some kind of legislative victory following our actions, then we are focusing on the wrong things because they're not guaranteed to us. The world isn't guaranteed to suddenly change its policies because of our actions. What our actions guarantee, if they're filled with the light of Christ, is that they will continue to transform our hearts and that they will be pleasing to God. That's it. That's all we are promised. You and me, all of us, members of the body of Christ, we are individual members. None of us are the body itself, and none of us especially are the head. That's Jesus Christ. He directs this body. It belongs to him. And what that body does and accomplishes in the world ultimately is up to the head. We as members are supposed to perform our function within the body. And that's it. That's our business. It's the difference between gardening and terraforming. We are called to be gardeners, to tend the weeds in our own hearts, to uh, put up walls and barriers to keep out pests that would destroy our garden. We're called to make small changes in our behavior day to day that steer us in a better direction. 
that make us more Christ-like. We're called to invite Christ to come into our lives and our hearts and transform us. We need to be terraformed, <laughs> but our actions are only at the scale of gardening. And if we, if we suppose that we are more important, more effective, at some broad, large-scale change or potentiality, then we're deluding ourselves and setting ourselves up for disappointment, for disillusionment. I think the path to take through all of this is to do exactly what St. Peter says in our epistle. He warns us that the end is at hand, the end of all things. What does that mean? Was he just wrong that it was about to happen? Or do his words here and the words of Jesus saying that you know, the kingdom of heaven is near and at hand, St. Paul saying things like Jesus is uh, right around the corner. What does that mean now that we're looking at these words 2,000 years after they were written? I think what it means is not that they were wrong, but that what they mean, what these words mean, is that the kingdom of heaven is imminent, with an A, I-M-M-A-N-E-T-E-N-T, -E meaning pervasive. It's here. It's, it's, it's pressing on us. It's right through that veil that separates us from heaven. It's right there. Imminent in that sense, not imminent in I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T in the sense of about to happen. Does that make sense? It's near. It's at hand in the sense of being close by, not um, chronologically near, metaphysically near. I'm not trying to, to make this a wishy-washy, like Christ isn't really going to appear and we will see him as he is. We have that hope and that belief. That's true. But when that happens, it won't be but a step that he has to take to cross that veil. He's not far off. He's near. He is at hand. And the end of all things, which is him, right? He is the end. He is the telos. Everything is summed up in Christ. He is at hand. He's nearby. So how should we live knowing that Christ is right here? He is at hand. He's a breath away. Not chronologically. Even Jesus in the Gospels amazingly says, it's not for the Son to know the times. That's for the Father to know. But what we know is that the Son is here. We see this in, in the book of Acts. We see when Stephen, the, the first martyr, is stoned. He looks up into heaven and there is Jesus standing. He's not far off. He's right there. The veil was moved away for a second. Stephen looked up and there he is, Jesus. Our head, the king of the world, seated in glory, crowned. That's what we celebrate in Ascension, right? His rising to the throne of his glory to be coronated as the king of all of creation. What does a king do if he's absent? That's not a king at all. The king is present. We just don't always see him. We see it in what happened to St. Paul on his road to Emmaus. A bright light shines and he's blinded and hears a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who? Who are you, Lord? Who am I persecuting? persecuting? Jesus says, I am Jesus and you're persecuting me. He didn't have to make a trip 
to let Paul know that. He just moved the veil, shone the light, and spoke. He's right here. So the way that we live with that knowledge is not to imagine that we have to fix the world or change it or, or work to make the world a better place. This world is Christ's. It belongs to him. And we also don't detach ourselves from it and run to the hills and just wait for the chronological event of Christ's coming. We live knowing that Christ will come chronologically and we'll see him as he is, but he's also here. He's present. He's on our altar. He's in our hearts. So what do we do? Well, we do what St. Peter told us to. Therefore, keep sane and sober in your prayers, and above all, hold unfailing love for one another, since it covers a multitude of sins. Love and charity for one another. That's our MO. That's our job. That's what we're here for. It's what we're supposed to be doing. Not world-changing or terraforming. It's gardening. Leading peaceful lives of charity. He says, more specifically and practically, as each has received a gift, employ it for one another. Again, if you're that economist or even that blogger, do it for the sake of others, whatever your talent is. And not just the talent. St. Peter is speaking of gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe that everyone is born with certain proclivities and abilities, talents, things that they find easier than other people and they're just good at. Well, that's wonderful. God's created us in a multitude of uh, talents like that. But the gifts of the Spirit, that's something else. That's metaphysically a different category. And that's what we're looking forward to as we pray for the gifts of the Spirit over these nine days between Ascension and Pentecost. That's what St. Peter's talking about. Whatever these gifts you have from the Spirit, employ them in charity for the sake of others. Whoever speaks, speak as one who utters oracles of God. Whoever renders service, as one who renders it by the strength which God supplies. You see the difference? You might be born with the talent of speaking, but if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you speak with that talent as one prophesying the oracles of God. You might have the talent of one who serves others well, but if you have the Holy Spirit, you do it with the charity of God acting in the strength of God's Holy Spirit working through you. In order that everything God, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is how we live our lives. We wake up, we do what God has given us to do, and we close the day saying, to Christ, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we wake up and do it tomorrow. I just wanted to make that point for us as none of us are able to avoid the news streaming through our TVs and radios and um, devices. There's a lot of stuff going on and we need this anchor to remember that we are called to love our neighbors and not to terraform society. This world belongs to Christ and so do we. Let's leave everything in his hands but be willing to be his hands if he animates us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.